Looks like everyone's back in here. Good job on musical cues there. Good training for January when we are needed on a more regimented schedule. Um, all right, so last go around for our five-year sermon arc on beauty. Um, I'm up here just once this month, actually, because we're doing things a little bit different this year. So I'm going to um, be up here saying some last little bit of words on beauty, and then we're going to be sort of doing a multi-stage debrief as a congregation and having good discussion about where we've come in the last five years, and then we have something interesting planned for the for the final week. Obviously, the Christmas service is thrown, thrown in there. So, um, yeah, without further ado, here we go. Um, the last couple months, um, we've been going over the breakdown, right, of what beauty is. Uh, the kind of beauty uh, we have been referring to, you know, in a godly beauty. In the last several weeks, Colin and James have spent going over those different um, traits that we've been studying over these last five years. So, I'm going to say them again one last time, and you're probably tired of hearing them. James did a good job of hearing them at the beginning of every sermon, so you should know them very well. Uh, wisdom, maturity, education, discernment, faithful, grounded, accountable, invested, and leadership. These are the traits we've been going over these last five years as we talk about how they relate to beauty. And so, like I said... Today is some final words on beauty itself, um, as it's meant to be understood in a, in a godly context, in a, in a godly worldview. So, uh, yeah, so how can we tie this all together? How can we sum this up and make sense of all these um, very real and personal character traits that supposedly mold and shape, uh, mold and shape our understanding of, of beauty um, and allowing it allow it to take form. Uh, how do we know that those things that we've been going over are indeed the makeup of beauty? Um, it's a simple answer. Um, because beauty is created, defined, and maintained by a personal God. Personal traits designed by a personal God. And it's through only through our personal God that beauty is given any real meaning, any real weight, any real substance, any real concrete definition that we can cling to. Without God, the concept of beauty dissolves into our favorite things of, of today, personal idiosyncrasies, you know, subjectivity. Unless beauty is rooted in God, unless beauty is rooted in God's mind rather than our own minds, every time we say something like, oh, that's so beautiful, what we really mean is just, I like that. Personal preference, right? And ultimately, that doesn't really mean anything. A student of Francis Schaeffer, those of you, a lot of you should have heard that name thrown around. We really like Francis Schaeffer here. Um, but a student of Francis Schaeffer quoted him and wrote this um, in his apologetic work. He said, Dr. Schaefer's first analysis of reality is that God is objectively there. For all human beings, the question before us is either God is there or he is not. There is no, there is no other basis or question. Thus, when the non-believer holds that God is not there, he has no explanation for what is before him or for himself. He cannot explain the beauty before 
him, he cannot explain the beauty in himself. He cannot explain the beauty of creation, the beauty of others, or the nature and beauty in the good that he sees. He admires it, he desires it, and he even borrows from it. He even borrows what it gives him, but he is hopeless to explain it. He can see God's creative declaration in which scripture states that God saw all, saw all that he created and said that it was good. But he has no viable explanation to make practical sense of it. He holds to a belief in love, but cannot truthfully explain what love is or the beauty thereof. He holds to views of good, but he cannot tell you truthfully what good is. Neither can he explain the beauty of what good is. He doesn't even have a basis for truth to tell you truthfully how to discern beauty rightly. He is hopeless in all of these efforts. Without a personal God, without a personal meaning for, for our definition of it, beauty is meaningless. And without an understanding in a deeper, of the deeper character of beauty, those things that we've been going over, um, as it's seen through God's eyes, it becomes nothing more than, like I said, personal preference, to which we should all just respond to one another's um, expression and understanding of beauty with uh, like a simple if not insulting, okay? Like, you know, when you text someone and it, you know, should elicit like a meaningful response and you see them typing, you see the three dots, and then all they respond is, okay? And how that just infuriates you because you're like, surely what I said deserves more, deserves more of a response than K, right? It's like that. And I would suggest that that wouldn't really sit right with any of us when we express beauty. I think we would all be sincerely bothered if our judgment and expression and understanding of beauty was relegated to being nothing more than, uh, and having no more validity than um, things and preference over things like Coke or Pepsi, like oven baked or deep fried turkey, or like, like, uh, I don't know, this is what's sticking in my head now, like old Yoda versus baby Yoda, for those of you that have been watching the new Star Wars show. I think that we would all be bothered if beauty was relegated to a level of meaningless preference. It's important to know that the dissatisfaction that we find in that, that we, when we think about that, it's not random and it's not coincidence. It comes from somewhere within us. Our unease with subjectivity and with relativity as it relates to beauty, as it relates to many things really, but as it relates to beauty, comes from God. And specifically from his image in which we of course created, and the reality he has placed us in. His creation placed within his creation. <clears throat> it bothers us at our core because we are made in his image. And we hold this truth within our hearts. And the question then becomes, do we recognize it as that? Do we recognize beauty for what it is meant to be? Or do we suppress it? Do we distort it? Do we mar it? Do we ruin it for something that it's not supposed to be? Do we try to kill it? And Schaefer, Francis Schaefer himself says, to me the most marvelous thing of all, all of creativeness is not artistic and cultural creativeness. But as you know, I have spent much of my life enjoying this. The greatest point of creativity is that we are significant and can influence history. This is startling when you think about it. Nothing else does in the same way by choice. So consequently, in my mind, beauty through creativity is the center thing for humanness. The person who 
is at odds with this truth of beauty, uh, but wants to hold it in a high regard, that wants to hold beauty in a high regard, but for no apparent reason, is at odds with the created order that we get from God and the world that he's made and his framework for how things should be and how things should be understood. And when those forms of organization and those um, designs and those intents of God are forsaken, that are sacrificed in any field of life, when they're, when they're ditched, that beauty is lost. We need to be able to find Christ and God's design in our definition of beauty as we live our lives and as we articulate ourselves and as we take things in and process what the world is spitting at us. And if not, we need to be, call, we need to be able to call it what it is when it's missing the mark of those things that we've been talking about. We need to be able to call it ugly. <clears throat> Cultural preference has no place if God's framework and design isn't sought and treated as something that is holy, as something that is set apart and meant to be seen in a specific way. And beauty must be defined in relation to God if we are to move outside the realm of that personal preference and subjectivity, outside of the realm of something that is merely, I like that, which means really nothing if we don't have a deeper basis of it. In our lives and as followers of God, there is, there is objective truth and beauty, and this is not something that is popular, especially in today's day and age, especially in the city we live, especially with any number of things that you see in media today. Beauty has objective truth, and it's not how you feel. It's not based on man's standard ever. <clears throat> and, you know, as I said, that's not a popular opinion, but we, we need to be able to stand firm in it and call it out when we see it missing the mark. We need to be able to call it ugly. If beauty as we know and understand, uh, as we know and understand it here on earth is intimately connected to God, is intrinsically connected to our infinite God, then we can assume that it is something that's been around forever. Beauty has always existed in a specific way, in a specific design of God. It's always been a part of his character and outworking, and it's, it's, it was put to, put to um, it was made real uh, in creation and manifested real in his creation in all of it, not just us, but all of his creation. Um, so before we go on, I was just sort of thinking about it over the last week as I was sort of trying to craft my sermon, but I want to be careful, and I don't want you to take a false impression of how I'm speaking about beauty, but I don't want it to be taken as some sort of other person, okay, in the, in the Trinity or something, some sort of hidden figure. Um, beauty is not another person within the Trinity, but it's an outworking of God's character. So as I speak, just please don't, if I, if I misstep, please allow me grace in how I'm speaking about it. Um, and, and beauty is not some sort of, um, like, formula or pattern that we can use to box God in somehow. Uh, it's not something we can create to box him in. We can't predict God in this way. Um, and if we could, then that thing would, would be God, right? That thing which defines God would then be God. Do you see how it would take the place of God? Nothing can define God outside of himself. Um, 
beauty is not the standard for beauty. That may seem weird or confusing, um, or obvious, perhaps, but beauty is not the standard for what beauty is. God is the standard for what beauty is. And beauty does not exist within a vacuum. It doesn't play by its own rules, um, and it's not in the eye of the beholder, as the world would you know, spit at you when we're taking things in. Um, unless, of course, the beholder is God. Beauty is not um, in our hands. Does that make sense? It's in God's hands. And beauty is what God is. And it is those things that we've been talking about for the last five years. Beauty is wisdom. His wisdom is beautiful wisdom. God's wisdom is beautiful wisdom. His relationship is beautiful relationship. And the investment and accountability and things like this through his body are beautiful. Even things we haven't talked about as our part of our plan, like his, his power and his justice and things like this. These are beautiful. These are beautiful aspects of his character defined by himself and how he interacts with his creation uh, and so on. I'm sure, you know, uh, education, all these things, as they relate to God, are defined as beautiful. Does anyone know who Ravi Zacharias is? Yeah. I'm sure there's a handful of you. Ravi Zacharias is an elegant speaker. He's a Christian apologist. Um, he says this, Beauty is a gift from God, but it is not given to us in a vacuum. God calls us to worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness, which means beauty has a fence around it. It's not purely an evocative thing. It must be bounded by the very person and character of God. Beauty has parameters. It's not free-floating. It's not whatever it wants to be. It's what it is as defined by God, and it plays by God's rules, and it's demonstrated in God and in his Son. And what's kind of amazing for us is that it's not just one aspect that we, you know, isolate as beautiful. All of who God is is beautiful. All of how he interacts is beautiful. Um, and we should be thinking about that when we think about beauty. Um, these attributes that we've been going over are in full bloom when we, in how they interact and interplay with each other. And that's where, where we see true beauty. Not as isolated, although anything isolated when you're talking about God, of course, should be seen as beautiful. But think of it like, um, like a painting or a picture or drawing or whatever. Um, it's not the individual color or shapes or things within a drawing that, that we take in that are beautiful. Um, well, maybe for the more advanced artistes, you can appreciate the individual parts of the picture as you're crafting it, of course. I'm not one of those people. I'm a simpleton. Beauty, <laughs> beauty <laughs> uh, is the combination of the different parts right, of the different parts of the picture, the relationship that this color has with that color, that this shape has with that shape, that this shade has with that shape, where this texture is on this part of the, the, the drawing, if you will. It's the interplay and their proportions and the harmony between all the little parts and details which make something beautiful. And we should be thinking about God's character in this way. It's the interplay of his whole character which form a picture of true beauty, um, and which become the basis and the foundation of how we understand um, really everything, but beauty. Um, it's important to have a formed view of this, to have a formed view of God's 
beauty, obviously. We've just spent the last five years talking about it. If it wasn't important, we probably wouldn't have done that. So I'm sure you could have uh, assumed that. But it's important to have a formed view in order for us to understand our relationship with beauty. Remember, caveat, I'm not talking about beauty as a separate person. But we do have a relationship and uh, an active should have an active understanding of beauty as it plays out in our lives and as we seek to emulate it, because, of course, that's what we're trying to do. Why do we long for beauty in our lives? And not necessarily talking about just physical things, but, of course, that applies. Um, what is man's fascination with beauty? Why do we sort of, you know, marvel at the created world? Um, I know there's a there's a, like a push for that right now, and it's good, and we should marvel at the creator world. Why do we grieve when the gorge burns down as it nearly did? What, like a year ago or two years ago? Something like that. Why do we grieve when things like this happen? Uh, why do we stare off into the ocean in a trans or like a campfire? You know, you guys know what I'm talking about? You can just stare at something so like magnificent. I mean, it sort of just puts you in like a, like a meditative state as you're taking in God's like beauty. Um, why do we make art in any capacity? Why, do, why has man for centuries and centuries created things, um, created, um, yeah, crafted things beyond purely like utilitarian purposes? Why do we crave relationship, and why do we crave purpose? <clears throat> and the truth is that we do. We do crave all these things, um, if we're being honest with ourselves. We long for beauty because that's how God created us. God created us to long for himself, and God is the picture and standard for beauty. So we crave it, and God is beautiful in, <laughs> God is beautiful in every single way. I just was thinking about the Christina Aguilera song as I said that, um, or as I thought about saying that. Um, even perversions of beauty. So think like maybe the Roman like Colosseum, like the gladiators stuff, you know? Even perversions of beauty where people crowd together to watch like death and carnage. Even things like this are proof that God, God created us to desire beauty. Of course, that's the distortion, right? The Colosseum and gladiators hacking each other to death is not beautiful, and I'm sure that God grieved over that. Um, but nonetheless, you can see that there's a seed in there. There's a, there's a, there does a, there's a desire for man to, to be seeking what is beautiful. Of course, that was based on man's standard and man's fallen state, but another discussion for another time, perhaps. But anything... Anything uh, less than God's standard, anything less than that leaves us with a hole that we try to fill. Uh, this, this space that can't be satisfied by anything less than what God offers us in terms of beauty and how he interacts with us. Uh, several years ago, when we were starting this five-year arc, Josh noted, as he you know, normally took the time to, to do the first sermon of the year, you know, he noted that beauty is recognition of God's ability to create, specifically, specifically God's ability to create in a specific way, out of nothing, um, rather than man's ability to restructure. 
which is what we were sort of just talking about there with the Colosseum example. Whenever we try to restructure God's creation, it becomes disfigured. It becomes marred. It becomes something that it was never intended to be. And even the good things that we create and that we hold beautiful pale in comparison to God's standard and quality of beauty. And, you know, they may have a remnant of God's beauty and um, somewhere within them or, or, you know, ideas of man may be good for a time, but it's only for a short time um, as it relates to our infinite God um, because the standard of that is based on ourselves. And what have we been talking about? <clears throat> Standards change. Subjectivity, relativity, standards change. And maybe it's decades or centuries even. Maybe it's a year or maybe it's days or maybe it's a few hours. But man's standard changes. And so you can't build, you can't build a life on that. You can't build the way you take the world in and the way you interact with the world based on that. We can't build our house on that. As the scripture says, Matthew 7 says, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it as wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it's built on a bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. <clears throat> so, all of this highlights, all that this highlights in, uh, is that God's full standard is unattainable. And this just shows the disparity that we have between God and ourselves. And the definition of man's true beauty is submission to God in that, submission to God's beauty and the outworking of it in, according, in accordance to his will and design. Beauty is not beauty if it doesn't have the things which God gives us. Relationship, product, productivity, and value. It's not beauty if it doesn't have those things. It's meaningless. It's personal preference. It's K. <clears throat> it's for those reasons, though, that we see God as good in our lives, like I said, because he gives us those things um, in his personal relationship with us. <clears throat> he gives us productivity and value and purpose. And it's through... His son, it's through Christ and the restoration that we get through him that we can work toward that more harmonious um, and holy relationship um, with a more godly beauty, a relationship with a beauty that's set apart from the world's standard. <clears throat> but without an active pursuit of an understanding of God's beauty and our relationship to it, we are led to dark places. We are led to um, despair and meaninglessness. When there's no basis for beauty, uh, when it's built on sand, uh, when it's not grounded in the character of who God is, we become susceptible to the plethora of um, philosophies, foundationless philosophies um, that we are taught in the world. Man wants beauty and justice, but has no basis for morals or ethics or even law. <clears throat> he wants beauty and love, but love is defined by lust and pleasure and whatever they can seek in the now, rather than devotion and sacrifice. Uh, he wants beauty and success in relationships, but his social contracts are in shreds at his feet. He 
longs for wisdom, but follows the trail of self-help and uh, the self-made man ideology and the sort of clickbaity inspirational quotes. Um, he hangs he hangs them on his walls, you know, on his cubicle walls. Maybe he reads the daily devotional of you know inspirational things that you know a man can be. Um, but their solutions, those solutions, those things, those foundationless um, philosophies lead lead us nowhere. Um, they lead us chasing imaginary things, chasing phantoms, things that are not real, things that are empty promises, um, marred images uh, of the beauty and the truth we are shown in God. And the ever-relevant ever Romans 1 um, sums it up for us. They knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools, and instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired, and they traded the truth about God for a lie, and so they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of praise. And that is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Skipping down, it says, Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do the things they should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness. Sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand. They break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway, and worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. In a world, or a worldview rather, um, devoid of our God and his standards for beauty, then there is, there's no way to have hope. There's no way to have morality. There's no basis for beauty. This kind of conclusion would lead someone to despair, would lead someone to a depressing state. Um, there's like an early 19th century philosopher, like existentialist. His name's Albert Camus, and he wrote this. There is but, and this is depressing, so be forewarned. There is but one truly serious philosophical problem and that is suicide. Why stay alive in an absurd universe? This is a man who didn't recognize God, who didn't recognize the meaning of his worldview, who had no basis for the meaning of his worldview. This way of thinking is taking the beauty that God offers and turning it into uh, Dorian Gray's portrait. You guys know the story of Dorian Gray? Dorian Gray was a man who, all right, someone help me fill in the blanks. Dorian Gray was a man, there was an artist who painted a beautiful portrait of him, and the beautiful portrait, <clears throat> I'm going to skip some details, the beautiful portrait took place of all of his ugliness, right? And so whenever he did an ugly thing, the portrait took that, right? While he stayed young and beautiful, and he lived a life of like every kind of wickedness, and the picture was destroyed in the process of his wicked life. Put a pin in that. I'll come back to that later. 
Um, so yeah, this way of thinking, of taking the beauty that God offers it and turning it into, turns it into Dorian Gray's portrait, marred and ugly in exchange for a false belief of what is true. That same student of Schaefer I quoted earlier says, when man realizes honestly the reality of this deep place of despair, the walls close in. He finds no beauty in his fallen system. His tension is that the image of God in him desires fulfillment of beauty, justice, love, and culture. But his methods which treat man as less than man, as an animal machine, often produce only deeper tension. Schaefer calls this state the fallenness of man. He likes to use fake, fakeish words. <laughs> the fallenness of man, the mannishness of man, things like that. The fallenness of man, though, does not lead to animal machineness, um, but to fallen manness. Still made and still existing in God's image, still capable of redemption through Christ, not hopeless, like Camus would suggest but hopeful once we come to the truth of who we are and what we need. As a response to this kind of residual sort of tension that we, that we might be holding in our own lives or through observing the lives of people that may be close to us, we have to maintain the biblical standard of godly beauty. Again, Josh noted at the beginning of our five-year journey, uh, and he uh, and in using Plato's, you guys remember when he? Uh, maybe half of you remember this. He used the allegory of Plato's allegory of the cave. Sorry, who knows what that is? Yes. Okay. So again, if I botch this, Plato's allegory of the cave. A man is tied up in a cave for his life, right? And all he knows is the shadows on the wall, and he views the shadows on the wall of the mo as the most real thing. He's eventually let out. That's not me. He's eventually, <laughs> he's eventually let out of the cave and is frightened and goes back to the cave because he thinks that nothing out there is real, only the shadows on the wall is real. Okay, did I get that right, more or less? Yeah, ish, okay. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, Josh noted at the beginning of the arc that beauty is the light that allows us to see the form that is casting the shadow. The shadow is not what's good. It's the form casting the shadow that is the real good, and that form is God, and his beauty illuminates him. Christ says in Matthew 6, Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body, and when your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness, and the light you think you have is actually darkness, and how deep that darkness is. We need to be on guard. We call it being discerning. We need to be on guard of how the world tries to pervert beauty and twist it and mar it into something that it's not. It's not by chance, uh, but it is maybe ironic, uh, that it's through the medium of the arts, um, a.k.a. creation, things like movies and, and music and TV, that we are being subjected to false ideas of what is beautiful and what is good. And the sad truth is that you don't even have to like chew long on these consumables to taste something off about them. They're so overt nowadays, you can, you can see what's off about them if you're being honest with what's on your heart and who God has created you to be. But being susceptible to these things <clears throat> is what causes our lamp to flicker, right? And a flickering lamp is the precursor to what Christ is talking about, darkness. And there's nothing beautiful in there, 
there's nothing beautiful in darkness. We cannot hope to be anything useful to the, to the people in our lives, the people that we're called to, if our lamp is not burning brightly, <clears throat> is not fueled by what is true. Um, if we, that is not fueled with actual fuel, right? A lamp can't burn with something that's not meant to burn. Um, if we're not, and if we're not willing to shine that lamp um, for God, if we're not willing to illuminate him with a proper and healthy understanding of beauty or fail to show him as personal in our lives because that's what he is and that's the point of the breakdown of this last five years, then, <clears throat> then we might as well be denying him. Because what's the point in having a personal God that you can't talk about? You don't, you don't treat people that way, right? Someone who's made a meaningful and impactful relationship on, our, on your life, you don't necessarily keep them secret. You don't hide them away. Like, you're, you're happy to, like, tell about that person that's made an impact on your life. And so the question is, do we treat God that way? There's a, there's a like, a, a big ad campaign that Sam Adams, the beer company, is doing right now where it's like in honor of like the holiday season or something, but where it's like taking a bunch of really popular comedians and the whole thing is like take time to toast someone. That's the whole shtick of it. Take time to toast someone. Do we do that with God? <laughs> and that's, that, sounds, that sounds weak sauce, but you understand my point. Like, do we, do we shine for him? Are we happy to talk about God and his personal relationship with us? Do we highlight his existence and highlight his impact, or do we, do we hide it? <clears throat> Schaefer says that our lives are to be viewed as works of art. In case you haven't picked up on it, um, a lot of what I'm talking about comes out of a book he wrote called Art in the Bible, I think it's called, Art in the Bible. Um, so feel free to check that out. I'm sure we have copies of it or a copy of it. But our lives are to be viewed as works of art. That they are to be objects of truth and beauty amidst a lost and despairing world. And remember, our lives should emit beauty through those three things I said earlier. Relationship, productivity, and value. Because those are the things that we are given in a personal God. And our lives should resonate with people because... In our lives, they see Christ, and our lives should reignite that thing that is absolutely within them, whether or not they acknowledge it or not. That, that thing that has been buried deep within them, the image of God within them that they have um, tried to extinguish but never could, um, should, it should force them, our lives should force them to come to grips with, with who they are and who they're created to be. True godly beauty is not something that can die. And in fact, like the portrait of Dorian Gray, pin out, we got it in our hands again, <laughs> it's the thing that will force them to come to grips with how ugly they are rather than the portrait itself. The story ends with Dorian Gray coming face to face with the portrait that has been marred and disfigured through his life of wickedness and it's, it kills him. There's like a supernatural element to it, but it kills him. He comes face to face with his ugliness but there is hope and encouragement for us, uh, for us all. So rather than um, try to kill us or 
in the story, he kills the artist that created the portrait, or try to kill the creator or suppress the creator. Obviously, we can't kill God. Um, it instead should have us on our knees in adoration and in worship of the artist, our creator, inspiring us to, I don't know, sell the portrait to other people or something. My metaphor ran dry. It should inspire, it should inspire us to, to highlight the beauty of it, but not to glorify the creation, right? Not to, not to glorify and treat the shadow as real, but the thing that cast the shadow, the thing that created the artwork, the portrait. So there is hope and encouragement in that. <clears throat> so I don't want you to be depressed that I'm calling you all Dorian Gray or something, and that you're all going to die because you look at your own ugliness as it falls short of God's standard. I'm not saying that. <clears throat> I want you to be encouraged. I'm not trying to lead you to the solution of what I said earlier about Albert Camus. Um, but anyways, I have some questions I want you guys to ponder about beauty and reflect on these last these few years. How has your concept and understanding of beauty changed over the last few years, the last few months even, or the last few weeks as we've been breaking down those different traits of what beauty is? How has it challenged your growth? <clears throat> I'll give you these questions, Colin, to post if you need. What are some ways that you see God's standard for beauty being under attack? And how are you defending it? How are you illuminating it with what is true, with what is beautiful? How are you extinguishing the ugliness and the darkness with what is truly beautiful? Are you active in that? Or do you more or less deny God's existence because of your unwillingness to do that and call ugly, ugly, and call beautiful, beautiful? Outside of God's framework and void of his glorification, what does beauty actually accomplish? outside of that framework. What's the point? What's your observation in this, Ben? And then lastly, how are you sharing God's beauty with the world? Does your life reflect the character of beauty that we've spent the last five years going over analyzing? Is your living artwork, as Schaefer puts it, is your living artwork missing something? Could it be more beautiful with a more... Um, yeah, well-crafted image with all the ingredients that you're supposed to use. Are you missing part of the picture? Is your artwork missing part of the picture? So these are the things you guys should go and discuss. And, you know, it's communion day, so um, take, you know, 20 minutes to do that and come back here ready for uh, communion. <clears throat>